Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, helping Atlanta's youth to go from selling water on the street to becoming entrepreneurs. All this just ahead, but first, let's get some news from the state capitol. The Georgia State Senate has dealt a huge blow to the effort to separate the neighborhood of Buckhead from Atlanta. WABE politics reporter Raul Bali has more on that legislation for annexing this affluent area of Atlanta and how it failed at the capitol yesterday. Republican State Senator Randy Robertson is from the Columbus area, but is the lead sponsor of Buckhead Cityhood legislation. We're not going anywhere, and this issue's not going anywhere. Supporters of Buckhead Cityhood have cited violent crime and police response from the city as a main reason for separating. Some of the issues raised by Democrats, some Republicans, and Governor Brian Kemp's office include what would happen to billions of municipal bonds and what would happen to thousands of Atlanta public school students. Democratic State Senator Sonia Halpern represents parts of Buckhead. I think the next thing would be is to pull together the folks who were really rooting for this thing to get a yes vote and really sit down and talk, many of whom have not necessarily been the ones to talk with us and have decided instead to talk with the senators who are from hundreds of miles away from here. Buckhead cityhood legislation came up five votes short after 10 Republican senators voted with all of the Democrats against Senate Bill 114. That included Republican Senator John Albers of Roswell. It's time to drop the angst and the egos and start working together. And this goes for both sides. With not enough votes in the Senate, no bill in the House, and questions from the governor's office, there's not much of a path for Buckhead Cityhood to pass this year. Raul Bally, WABE News, the state capitol. And over in the Georgia House, lawmakers there passed new protection for renters. Georgia's tenant rights are currently among the weakest in the country. WABE Sam Greenglass has more on how that could possibly change. This bill requires landlords ensure their properties are fit for human habitation. Many states have livability requirements like this. Georgia currently does not. The legislation also stops landlords from cutting air conditioning during the eviction process and mandates a three-day grace period for tenants to pay their rent and avoid eviction. Tenants' rights advocates say these are good first steps, but more protections are needed. The bill passed unanimously and heads now to the Senate. Several other housing bills are in front of the legislature, including an effort to curb investor-owned housing and prevent local zoning regulations that some say make housing more expensive. But there's limited time left to move them before crossover day. Sam Greenglass, WABE News. A bill that could change how public schools are accredited in the state is moving forward in the Georgia House. We'll get those details from Martha Dalton. Most Georgia schools are accredited by a private company called Cognia. A bill sponsored by Representative Jenny Earhart will give the State Board of Education oversight of Cognia and other accrediting agencies. Cognia sets its own standards for accreditation review. 
with no input and no guidance from any state agency or the Georgia uh, General Assembly. Cognia retracted part of a review it conducted of the Cobb County schools last year. The assessment focused mostly on the behavior of school board members who often got into heated debates during meetings. Earhart says her bill would refocus the accreditation process on student achievement and financial efficiency rather than board governance. The House Education Committee approved the measure, which will soon move to the full House. Martha Dalton, WABE News. And finally... We're marching today to dramatize to the nation, dramatize to the world, that hundreds and thousands of Negro citizens of Alabama, but particularly here in the Blightville area, denied the right to vote. The date was Sunday, March 7th, 1965. Then a 25-year-old John Lewis, along with others, led hundreds of peaceful demonstrators across the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama. This path was part of the Selma to Montgomery March for Equal Voting Rights. But the day before, Saturday, March 6th, Alabama Governor George Wallace announced he would, quote, not let Negroes march from Selma to Montgomery, adding, I, I have so instructed the Department of Public Safety. The following is from that day. To be detrimental to your safety, to continue this march, and I'm saying that this is an unlawful assembly, you have to disperse, you are ordered to disperse, go home, or go to your church. This march will not continue. From that day on, the brutal beating of John Lewis and others would be referred to as Bloody Sunday. The march was a major part of the movement that helped get the Voting Rights Act passed later that year. And then for years, and upon becoming Georgia's congressman, John Lewis honored those who died fighting for civil rights by leading a delegation of lawmakers and activists to Alabama's Civil Rights Memorial Center. Well, today, Lewis will be remembered during the ceremonial wreath lane along with 40 martyrs of the civil rights movement. In attendance will be current Congresswoman Nakima Williams, who now represents Lewis' 5th Congressional District. The Civil Rights Memorial Center is located near the historic church where Dr. King served as pastor during the Montgomery bus boycott and the Alabama Capitol steps where King spoke to thousands at the conclusion of the Selma to Montgomery Voting Rights March. History. This is Closer Look. We're back in a moment. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. It's called a gray wave. So hang with me because that's one way to describe the U.S. population growth among a particular age group. I'll get to that in a moment. But check this out. Folks 16 years of age and older. Okay. 
folks age 25 to 54, a group economists call prime age workers, increased by 40,000 in 2022. And I have to tell you that producer Daniel did not like that term, prime age workers. Meanwhile, the number of Americans 65 and older, well, that jumped by 2 million, hence the gray wave. Well, a new report is connecting an aging population as a big reason for the worker shortage that's helped fuel inflation over the past 18 months. So let's take a deeper dive and welcome from Atlanta's Federal Reserve, John Robertson. He's a senior policy advisor and economist. Welcome. Hi, Rose. Pleasure to be here. Yes. Producer Daniel did, doesn't understand the prime age worker, but we'll yeah, get to she, that. Blame <laughs> economists for coming up with... I will. Let, listen, before we get to that, I want to just get your thoughts. We're expecting another inflation economy data report this week. If you looked into the John Robertson crystal ball, what are we going to possibly know that we already don't know or may not know? It's. I think it's really hard to say because so many prices are moving around, more, you know, so much more than they have in the past. And so how that balances out is is a little unclear. I mean, the trend over the last year has been slowing and the kind of headline inflation report but but a lot of that is still to do with big movement like used car prices moving a lot um get price of gasoline coming mm-hmm. down things like that so listen when you talk about these prime age workers again 25 mm-hmm. to 54 are we saying that they're just that they're not growing in terms of coming to the workforce or they just been slow in getting a job because daniel was again offended that are you saying his folks aren't working it's actually a little bit of both. I told him that. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so part of it is just as a as a population group. So why they tend to be called prime age mm-hmm. is because that age group, 20, 25 to 54, is, usually, is that's kind of like the sweet spot where the highest proportion of people are working. Mm-hmm. Right? You're most, that's, if you're younger than that, there's a good chance you're in school. And if you're older, then you're starting to move to closer to, to the retirement ages. And uh, and so uh, so typically you just get growth in that supply of labor just from the growth in the population of that. But just be, just the way the demographics have worked out, hmm. that, that population group is not growing very much at all. And in fact, the CBO just came out with projections last week that say it's not going to grow that much even over the next decade. Really? Yeah. So what you rely on more is the participation of that group and getting that up, right? So if it's currently around 80%, that's actually down, mm-hmm. right, from two decades ago. Uh, and it took a long time to recover after the last big recession, the mm-hmm. Great Recession. And it came down again during the pandemic. And so meanwhile, to fill in the gaps that Daniel and his folks, since they don't want to work, <clears throat> we know mm-hmm. that those <laughs> close enough to retirement age during the height of the pandemic decided to, he said, you know what, I'm just going to make this official earlier than than expected. And therein lies the rub. Yeah. It's, and it's really interesting uh, that underneath all this, the story really began around 2008. 2008 was when the first edge of the baby boom generation Mm -hmm. turned 62. And and hence, 
first became eligible for Social Security, right? And so you would have actually expected, just based on the demographics, the population growth in, of that age group, that you get more retirements. But you actually, we got less retirements than we expected, mm -hmm. probably in part because of the Great Recession wiped out the savings of so many families that it, that it forced people to work longer. And then also other shifts like it's more jobs, are less labor, less physically demanding that allows people to work longer. Mm -hmm. So we actually got grow less retirements than we would have expected during that decade of 2010 to 2020. And then COVID came and a lot of people <laughs> who were already of retirement age, it appears that they kind of reevaluated whether they really wanted to to work anymore. So between 2008 and, and 2020, folks had to work a little longer because of the fallout from the Great Recession. But then the pandemic comes and they said, you know what, I can't deal with this again. Maybe I have enough now. I'm going to retire. And you're also saying, look, the last 18 months with inflation, this population, that 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 group, that's contributing to where we are right now. I, mean, I want you to connect the dots for yeah, our listeners. I mean, so, yeah. So I mean, when, when the when lockdown happened in 2020, we essentially had about a year's worth of retirements over a couple of months. Right. So about a million we had about a million people more retired than you would have expected just based on demographics and pre-pandemic behavior. And 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 that's really coming from two two sources. There's I've, I've read news reports that, that talked about like a wave of early retirement. Mm -hmm. That wasn't really it. Yeah, sure there was some there was some early retirement, but really it was people who were already of retirement age, people 65 to 75 years of age who was who were working still they left and a, a large number of them left and then there's also a kind of a flow that comes in the other direction of people who are currently retired who decide they want to work right and you know people they want to pick up some part-time work mm -hmm. or you know perhaps perhaps their financial situation isn't as good as they thought it was going to be so they have to come back to work well that also went down so you got more exits and you get less entries and that caused a surge in, in retirements, particularly amongst people 65 to 75. If you're saying that it could take 10 years before that prime worker age group, that prime age population, to sort of fix where we're at right now, it, it needs to rise significantly to get to that pre-COVID level? Is that what you're saying? Like we need these folks to enter the workforce and be working. But we need, yeah, we need more. We need more people. I mean, and the 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 tricky thing is, it's just so hard to predict behavior. Like, so yeah, so I, you know, I can tell you the demographics and the the, the population numbers, mm -hmm. but it's how those people choose to behave in terms of being in the workforce or not in the workforce that will really matter. And so we saw just like just before the pandemic, the last. Through, you know, 2016 through 2019, we saw fairly rapid growth, unexpectedly rapid growth in the labor force that was brought about probably in part because of the tightness of the labor market, mm -hmm. right? The labor market was tight and that was a, it was a good time to be in the workforce 
And uh, like the worst thing that can happen to somebody who's working is to lose their job. Sure. Right. Well, in a tight labor market, the chances of you losing your job goes down. Mm-hmm. Right. And that keeps you engaged in the labor market. Well, it's interesting because women left the workforce at an alarming rate during the pandemic. We know this. And often many had to take on some duties, but they have not yet returned as well. So you, you factor in that population, you mm-hmm. factor in this retirement population, and then we're looking at inflation and all this. Is it a recipe for disaster? I mean, is there any other metric or any other indicator that could help this situation other than saying we need these prime age workers to get into the workforce? We need, uh, yeah, we need we need more of that. I mean, one, one it's actually related to your to your previous story uh, is immigration. That's a that's another channel through mm-hmm. which you can grow the workforce um, without having to wait for babies born today for another you know twenty five years <laughs> for them to be in the workforce. Right. So immigration is a channel and immigration actually, I mean, so immigration was another thing that was affected significantly during the pandemic. Uh, our, our borders were temporarily shut and mm-hmm. a lot of people didn't want to come during, you know, until it was safe. We've actually seen a kind of a resurgence in immigration. Um, at least the data I've been looking at suggests that it's it's kind of come back. But it's kind of come back to the pre-COVID trend, but the thing is the pre-COVID trend isn't enough. <laughs> Pre-COVID trend needs to be higher to kind of make up the gap that's come about because of this excess retirement. Let me ask you, are you all able to determine if there are some specific, specific industries that might be more that are, are filling the crunch of this more than others? I mean, the last couple of weeks we've been doing a lot with the tech uh, layoffs and and also we know that restaurant workers did not return uh, a big percentage of restaurant workers did not return uh, after the height of the pandemic any other sectors that you all are seeing that that might really feel the brunt of this gap here in terms of workers um it's a good question don't think I could specify off the top of my head, sure. but I think that certainly we heard lots of stories about uh, the hospitality, leisure hospitality industry, mm-hmm. restaurants, hotel, everybody was, de- you know, desperately sure that those workers did not come back. Um, and part of that is a, is almost like almost a good news story as well, because part, part of the other thing we've seen in the labor market is that people leaving their jobs voluntarily to go to another job is almost at a record high level, right? So the tightness of the labor market has actually created opportunities for people to leave a lower paying job for a better paying job, possibly by changing industries. Uh, but that's that helps them as individuals. It doesn't help that industry that they're leaving if they, if they can't replace it. In other words, trying to f- figure out this equation of the labor supply equals x of the demand it's exactly it's it's, it's, right. it's a tough one so 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 we kind of got both things going on right mm-hmm. we got demand is high all these firms are trying to hire uh people are people have money they want to spend but we are but we also have supply that is not really even fully recovered from the from the pandemic let alone kept up with the growth in demand 
So what is your message to Daniel's group, this 25 to 54? What do you want them to know? That they're ruining the, they're ruining the economy? <laughs> I don't think... I don't think blaming them. Oh, let's blame gonna, them. No, I'm just kidding. It's going to help. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's there's figuring out the reasons why people don't in work, don't mm-hmm. engage with the workforce, and why, why it's so high is important because if we understand that better, then we maybe can figure out ways to get rid of those impediments that are Absolutely. stopping people from working who would otherwise work. Absolutely. Atlanta's Federal Reserve, John Robertson, a senior policy advisor and economist. Thank you so much for taking the time. Good conversation. We really appreciate the good work you all do over there. Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. We're working to get that other segment on for you. But in the meanwhile, check this out. The program is called Hey, or Helping Empower Youth. Now, this story was first profiled by a good friend of ours, veteran journalist Sam Crenshaw. A cold and rainy day didn't keep a loyal group of teenagers away from their favorite after-school gathering spot. They don't have to be here. It's their choice. And that's an important word to remember. For us, it is about making sure that they have the resources, the tools, the opportunity, and the support to figure out what change they want to see in their own lives and in their community and making sure that they're empowered to be able to do that. And that's exactly what happened regarding a group of youth and young adults referred to. We often call them the Atlanta water boys or girls. Often you may see them in, in many Atlanta neighborhoods and some busy at some busy intersections selling cold bottled water to motorists, all trying to make some extra money. Nothing wrong with that, I tell you. And I'll also let them take it from here. So joining me now in studio is Casey Vinnings, co-founder and executive director of Helping Empower Youth. And also I'm joined by Addison and Sheldon. And Sheldon has already told me he could drop some beats if I wanted to play some 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 music. But Sheldon, I'm not going to put you on the spot and let you drop some bars. Because I can. You know, I will do that. You, you want me to do that? Nah, Jibai, Jibai. <laughs> <laughs> All right, welcome to the program. Uh, let me start with you, um, Casey. What what is the what do you want folks to know about perhaps misconceptions about these young folks who are selling water? Yeah, I think, or that were selling water. Yeah, I think the biggest thing I want people to know is that they're just like your children. Um, they just come from zip codes or communities in our city that have to try a little harder uh, to get the things that a lot of us easily provide for our own children. Mm-hmm. But I think the biggest thing I want people to know is that they're just like just like your children. Mm-hmm. Um, they want the same things. They deserve the same things. Um, and at the core, they want to take care of themselves and want to live long healthy futures Mm -hmm. Uh, we just have to help them get there addison let me ask you this come a little bit closer to the mic for me uh what you were you were selling water why why were you doing that 
I would sell the water to stay out of trouble and make my own money. Mm-hmm. All right. What about you, Sheldon? The same, just to help my family and mm-hmm. stuff out like that on extra time. I got you. And uh, Casey, let's for our listeners who may not be familiar with, let's back up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, how Hey and I love it Hey, Thanks. how that was founded. Sure. Uh, my co-founder, Coach Boyd, uh, Mark Boyd, and I really started this work back in 2009 mm. um, in the Old Fourth Ward on Boulevard. Mm-hmm. At that time, it was the poorest street. I know it well. Yeah, <laughs> in the state of Georgia. And we were working with Bedford Pines, mm-hmm. if we are familiar with that community. And over time, both of us were working full-time jobs, and we would get called in um, to do things with other organizations, other schools, And eventually it became so big that we had to make a choice as to whether or not we were going to do this full time or just keep doing it as individuals who wanted to continue to serve. Pandemic was a pivot for us like it was for everyone. We couldn't do the work that we were doing in schools anymore. And so we decided that we were going to go all in Mm -hmm. when other people were pulling back and rightfully so. Right. We get it. But we learned really quickly that there were a group of young people who cannot afford to quarantine. Mm-hmm. They cannot afford for us not to lean fully in and help them. And I got to tell you, Casey, I, I know the area. Uh, I've seen some youth as young as maybe fourth and fifth graders mm-hmm. out there. That was during the height of the pandemic. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's troubling to think that an eight and a nine year old would need to be out there Um, But, again, we learned very quickly that home was not always the most safe or comfortable place to be Mm -hmm. when we were asked to stay, you know, to ourselves as we were working through this global health pandemic. Um, Everyone, everyone can do that. And also, uh, Sheldon and Addison, I want to get your thoughts on this, too, because if there are a lot of folks out there selling water, uh, I imagine you tell me if I'm wrong, that there might have been some tension sometimes between hey, this is my block or this, I was here first. Did you ever encounter that? Were there some dangers involved in selling the water? Uh, no, man. It was just like um, we all really just come together sometimes. Mm-hmm. Like, so, well, we don't always go to each other different where we used to sell water at because wherever, nine times out of ten, wherever they selling water at, they dine out they friend from where they from and things like that. So, so it was what, an understanding. This is where you're going to be. This is where we're going to be. Yeah, man. Be. So everybody already know, like, you know, what's it where to sell that and thing like that. But won't nobody really stop you from going where you want to go, though. Mm-hmm. But but there were some incidents now, I want to be clear. There yeah, was some, And some folks that lost their lives. So there was some. Now, it could have been other things. I don't know. But I want right. to be very clear that, that there was some issues with, with, you know, folks on other folks' pro- beef or whatever. Yeah, property, man. Whatever you want to call it. Um, Casey, wouldn't mm-hmm. you all decide, let's let's target these young folks? and Yeah. Um, you know, in a sense, I think they found us. Uh, they were the young men that we've worked with primarily were literally on the corner of Ivan Allen Boulevard and Northside. Um, those of us who have been in this work, we know the other side of Ivan Allen, which is Joseph E. Boone or Old Simpson Road. Mm-hmm. And so that is my hood. That's my block. I mm-hmm. live in Washington Park. And so we would pass these young men often. And I think it was just the coming together. And so we decided that since this is where we work and we serve and we we live, that these should be the young men that we work with. So now what is what are you all doing? There is a there's a Mm. a concept here because they're going from being out there on those intersections and the corners to Mm -hmm. young entrepreneurs. Absolutely. 
So, um, you know, they never called themselves the Water Boys initially. Mm-hmm. Uh, the city kind of dubbed them that, and they took it and they ran with it. And so when the young men we were working with um, f- learned that there were other ways to make money and really got fully en- engulfed in the program that we were doing, um, they decided that if this is what the city is going to kind of criminalize us over and villainize, villainize us for, then let's make money off of it for real. And so they came together and with the help of the adults in the space created Hey Hydrate, mm-hmm. which is a private label water brand. And through last year's summer um, business intensive, the Hey Just Business um, intensive, they got the tools necessary and got the attention of Kroger. And so we were really excited to be able to talk to executives there. So we can get the hay water in the in Kroger. And we're working on working it. Working on it. Working on it. Not yet, but hopefully before the end of the year. How's Kroger? How, how are they involved in this? Are they agreeing to do this? Or are they? So we're working with someone who works with their diversity and inclusion programs mm-hmm. and around their accelerators, and he has um, really taken to these two particular young men and mentored them to ensure that we get all of the boxes checked and all the things that we need so that they can then go into the stores. Addison and Sheldon, how cool is it to be a part of this <laughs> this new venture from you, you don't have to be on the streets now trying to sell the water. You actually you're doing a, a little different pathway. How cool is that? I want to say it's it good for me because like, it's different. <laughs> like, when we first met him, um, he got us to go out of town, get on the plane. Yeah. I ain't never really do that. Yeah. So it's really a different for me. Learning about the business, learning how a business operates? Yes, ma'am. Everything. If someone said to you, okay, well, wh- why is your water? Why should I get your water? What you going to tell them? <laughs> oh, because it's high. Uh, it's high hydrate. Uh, hy- it hydrates. It's hay hydrate. Hay hydrate. Okay. hydrate. All right. <laughs> So y'all going to be entrepreneurs. Can I, can I borrow some money? Yeah. <laughs> Case, let me uh, come back to you for yeah. a moment. Or programs like this, and I know that this, the city of Atlanta has called this the year of the youth. Mm-hmm. You know, programs like this, how important are they for the community and for these young folks? They're necessary at this juncture. Um, I think part of the other work that I've been charged to do is help to change the narrative of what youth development and youth service work looks like. Mm -hmm. Um, We can't continue to do business as usual and just show up as adults and say, here you go. Mm -hmm. It requires um, input from these young people because uh, being 17 today is a lot different than when I was 17 and 97 and 98 and I can't. Approach and I was seventeen it. some years before the end. <laughs> mm-hmm. So we can't we can't approach it the the same way. Mm-hmm. And it's really important that we understand that there are a lot of young people mm-hmm. to serve. And so a lot of what we do is around collaboration over competition, yeah. um, so that we can all work together to meet the needs of young people. How many young folks are involved with the the Hey Hydrate Water? Yeah, so we have about eight that are hands-on, directly involved with that particular initiative, Mm -hmm. but we use it as an in-house incubator, so all of the young people who come through our program throughout the year touch some part of the business so that they can learn those transferable skills for other ideas that they have. And besides this entrepreneurial pathway that you have, you all have mental health as a part Mm -hmm. of this, too. Yeah. Yeah. So for us, it's really important. Um, For me personally, um, you know, no shame, but I live with a a diagnosis. I'm a person with a lived experience, and I 
know that when you're not okay emotionally and mentally, it's hard to then be okay in education and in your personal life and in your business. And so one of the things that we do with each of our program sessions is this thing called the Circle of 100. Mm -hmm. And it's something that we've curated, which does a check-in that allows us to shift where we need to, but then also using the principles of youth mental health first aid to help dictate how we facilitate programming. And I have a listener that has a question and wants to know with this program, these young folks can actually make some money is what you're saying too. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, I think that's where we're a little bit different too with our programming is that as they complete activities throughout the week and modules, those points turn into cash at the end of the week. All right. Now, I'm not going to, Sheldon and Anna, I'm not going to ask you how much money you make because that's (laughs) none of my business, but I will ask you this. Um, This program taking you off the streets from selling water, what what do you hope to get out of it? Where do you hope it will lead you in in the future? What do you think? With more business, man. More businessman? Okay. And get our name out there more. Get your name out there? Okay. Um, for me, I want to say, like, for this to help me in the long run, so I don't have to be out here 20 trying to just struggling. Yeah. You feel me? Trying to be still trying to find out what I want to do. I understand. I feel you on that. Case as you wrap up, when you yeah. hear these young men talk about that, you know, how to hope, hopefully, we'll prepare them for the future. You got a smile on your face. Absolutely. It, it makes me feel good that. The hard work that we we do every day, um, it will pay off. It is paying off. Like they may not be able to see it, but I have been able to see leaps and bounds mm-hmm. in their character and their responsibility and their maturity from, you know, just the few short years that we've been working with them. They are different young men than when we first encountered them. Yeah. Can I get one of those? Hey, they got hey. I have a bag for you. We got a t-shirt. And they some, got sweatshirts yeah, though. Huh? They do. We will get you a sweatshirt up here. <laughs> I'm just messing with you. Um, how are you all funded though? I mean, this takes. Ooh, yes. Um, so, so you, I love this word: <laughs> public-private partnerships. Is that what oh, it takes? Oh my goodness! It takes all of that and then some. So yeah. definitely, I spend a lot of my time writing grants. I'm doing a lot of begging from folks. Oh, um, I, I know about. We don't call yes. it begging. We call it. Asking, asking, solicitating <laughs> funds, soliciting funds. Um, but we do. And we're really grateful for the partnership that we have with the city as well. And they have found creative ways to help show up. But there's still so much to do. Mm-hmm. I, I will say this. I tell people all the time that, um, you know, poverty is expensive. So doing good costs. And so we can't do this off of good intentions that we definitely need folks to contribute funds so we can continue the work. And say that louder for the people in the front, middle, and the back. (laughs) Poverty is expensive. So doing good costs. And why do you do this work, Casey? For me, I think it is me ensuring my own future. You know, I'm going to grow older and I'm not going to have the energy to be with them every day. But I want to make sure I've done my part to impact the lives of young people who will then make decisions that will impact me later. We appreciate you doing that. Casey Vennings, co-founder and executive director of Helping Empower Youth. I was also joined by Addison and Sheldon. Best of luck to you, young men. Reach out if you ever need anything, and I will be the first to, to grab some of that water and here at WABA, at least for closer look, we will have your water when we're doing our show. We How about it. that? Yeah, man. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Thank, thank you, you both. And 
Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Wash Day Diaries. It's a graphic novel telling a lot, telling the story of four black women living in the Bronx. Now, the novel originally was released as a mini comic, and it tells the story of each friend through their wash day. Yes, the hair care ritual during which all outside responsibilities are halted. I know what that's like. The author, Jamila Rouser, and illustrator, Robin Smith, they used Kickstarter as a, a campaign to actually fund the, pump, the fund the publication of Wash Day Diaries. And now, guess what? It's up for a few awards and has already nabbed one honor, an Alex Award, and it's a finalist in the L.A. Times Book Prize. See? Don't give up, folks. You never know. We're going to revisit the conversation with Rouser upon the graphic novel's release. I'm joined now by one half of the team, Jamila. Welcome. Thank you, Rose. So excited to be here. I want to begin by saying thank you. This is really, really cool. <laughs> this is really and, and from and listen from that very first page that reads, quote, to the black girls around the world, you are seen. You are beautiful. Take our listeners yes, through how yes. all this came about. This is awesome. Thank you so much. Um, yes, this uh, actually st- spawned from my first um, comic book, which was uh, Wash Day, which was a, the first chapter or the first story in Wash Day Diaries. And I've always loved comics. And the thing that I really felt was missing was uh, comics featuring Black women going through their other, everyday life. You know, we do get the superhero stuff mm-hmm. and we'll even get slice of life things from, uh, you know, not marginalized folks. Um, but I just wanted to see something that represented my friends and me um, and uh, you know, and showing like uh, highlighting our hair. And, and mm-hmm. that was one of the things that I really wanted to show is like the the time and care we put into um, our hair, which is something that society deems unprofessional at times, ugly at times. Mm-hmm. Um, and despite all of that and in spite all of that, you know, we put a lot of care and I wanted to show black women that you know, there is a place for them in comics that I see them um, and just making space for us in the comic book world um, and honoring them and and our routines. And even though when I have my wash day, I dread it. <laughs> <laughs> Who are you telling? <laughs> it is, it's not as beautiful as it looks in the comic, but, uh, you know, we do have two pages of detangling. So I try to keep it as, as authentic as possible. Listen, I have lo- <laughs> I have locks all the way down my back. I'm there. I, I get it. Let's take our listeners <laughs> through these four friends. Um, I imagine that there's a little bit, is there a little bit of you in, in all of these sisters or... <laughs> <laughs> there is. It's interesting. Uh, there's a little bit of every. I'm in. I'm in a little bit of everybody, and my friends are kind of a little bit in everybody as well. Um, and I really wanted to kind of have uh, sisterhood and friendship is huge uh, themes for me and my work. And I really wanted to show not just you know the beauty of our hair care routines, but the beauty of friendship and black sisterhood and how we. Um, can depends on each other and that beautiful interdependence and uh, the different dynamics that our friends um, can have and, you know, how much we love each other. And even through our ups and downs, uh, we may not always get it right, but we always do care. And, um, and so it was really fun to be able to put that, combine that with the hair journey and um, the artist, Robin Smith. Yeah through this journey of us creating, you know, the very first comic, Wash Day, the 
the 27 page comic back in 2018, we became best friends. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's a ton of friendship and love um, that you can really feel in this comic because we ourselves are really good friends. And then um, just the close bond that I have with my other friends, I just wanted readers to feel that, feel like, you know, oh, I can relate to this in my group chats and, and my best friends and going to brunch and things like that. So um, we don't we don't get to see a lot of that. We do get to see a lot of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, black trauma and, mm-hmm. and things like that, I think is more focused. Um, those kind of stories are more focused on. And I wanted to um, have something lighter um, and that is still really important. I want to focus on a Robin. Unfortunately, she couldn't join us today. But when you look at when you first saw what she came up with for Kim, Nisha, Cookie and Devine, Mm -hmm. did you say, okay, she nailed it because they all got different, different types of hair texture, different Mm -hmm. facial features, you know, their backgrounds. How how spot on did Robin do with these? Robin was amazing. I didn't have, um, I didn't give her a lot of um, very specific things about how I wanted the characters' faces to look. I just wanted to have a diverse range of skin tones, hair types, and body types. And so I think she did a really wonderful job in, in creating like hair that actually looks real, you know, as a black woman who reads comics, unfortunately, I've seen a lot of black hair that is just not realistic. It's like, that's not our hair, how our hair lays. That's not how cornrows look. Um, so she, you know, is a wonderful artist. And um, I just, it just blew my, it blows my mind every time I would get a new page from her. It was just such a wonderful feeling. And why the Bronx? The Bronx is my quote unquote hometown. Yeah. <laughs> so um, that's where I spent a lot of my 20s and and that's where I spent most of my time with my very close friend group. Uh, I went to school in New York City. My my um, I'm a military brat, so I moved all mm-hmm. over the place. Uh, but my parents are from the Bronx. My family's from the Bronx. And so that is my like, that's what I rep, although I am in hot Miami right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, Brooklyn gets a lot of shine. Uh, but, you know, I think thanks to like Cardi B and stuff, the Bronx mm-hmm. gets more um, is getting more shine. And so the city is a part of is a kind of a character in itself as well. And I wanted to show, you know, the specific stuff that you can get in the Bronx or the experiences you can get going to the bodega and mm-hmm. the different trains, making sure they were very accurate, you know, like the train stations looked exactly like that train station because mm-hmm. um, I knew New Yorkers would be able to tell, like, that's not how the <laughs> Castle Hill train looks. Because <laughs> they will let you know. Oh, they will. They definitely will. <laughs> and in the world of social media, they'll put you like, the she don't look nothing like the Penn Station. They or will, whatever. yes. <laughs> they will tag me and let me know. <laughs> let me ask you this, because your background, mm-hmm. you mentioned, and you talked about this in terms of graphic novels and comics and not seeing a lot that focuses on just black women, our everyday mm-hmm. experiences. This some, I've been reading some reviews and there was a, a woman on YouTube that actually did a, she does a hair like routine type, you know, do it yourself. And she also gave a review of the book. Did you see that? I have not. Oh my gosh. That yeah. sounds amazing. I need to find that. <laughs> yeah, she's got your book. I'm like, okay, she's giving y'all a shout out. I love out. that. How important is, a, is a, a graphic novel like this right now? I think 
for me, it, it hits on so many different levels of how, why it's important. Um, I think it shows that all kinds of black stories are important, not just the ones that are about, you know, trauma or, um, you know, the hardships that we go through, they are important as well. Mm -hmm. But we can also celebrate the love that's in our lives and friendships and things that seem mundane, you know, like washing our hair is actually a really big deal. Mm -hmm. And I think show, showing that and highlighting that um, is important. And it shows people a different um, way to uh, see black stories and, and understand black stories. Um, and also that it's adult uh, black women. We mm -hmm. do get a lot of comics that are for um, kids, you know, middle grade, young adult. And these are, this is a little bit more, y, a little bit older than YA. You know, these are adult women doing adult women things. And we don't get a lot of that in comics in general, period, let alone black women. Absolutely. And in fact, so. <laughs> in fact, you touch upon it when you, when I think, I think it's Devine when she's trying to get her hair cornrowed. Mm -hmm. And she she's like, look, I can't go to work with my hair natural, not yep. after what happened last time. And she says, I can't deal with this <clears throat> stuff right now. Yes. That's real. <laughs> that it's is real. real experiences I've had personally. A lot of a lot of the stuff that happens um, is is based off of personal experience, not a straight up auto bio. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, I wanted there to be cursing and mature topics. And there's some, you know, mild nudity because a girl's in the shower washing her hair. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there are things like that that we don't get in comics. And I want, um, as a 35 year old who loves comics, um, I really want Wash Day Diaries to be, uh, me and Robin, our goal is like, if this is the first comic a black woman reads like this, that will make our day, you know, and show them that there are comics out there for them and inspire them to go looking. Um, and, and because when you walk into, you know, a comic book shop or a Barnes and Nobles, mm -hmm. you may not see stuff that features characters that look like you. Mm -hmm. And if they do, they're, you know, background characters or mm -hmm. they're written by, you know, straight white men and it just doesn't feel authentic. And so, I hope it inspires um, Black women out there to uh, see that there are comics that can be about them and to maybe write their own and create their own. Um, and that's, I, and yeah. <laughs> no, I, 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 and I also see, I can see Wash Day Diaries and, and animation too. Listen, exactly. <laughs> I have the same idea. <laughs> I would love for it to be animation uh, because that is definitely an area where. I don't wear black women's stories in adult animation. I don't see that, you know? Um, and so that would be a dream because I love animation as well. And so if, if anybody's listening and interested, they can hit us up. <laughs> you, you're, you're open for discussions and negotiations. Oh, very what you're open. saying? What's the, Jamila, what's the, what's the feedback been like so far about wash day diaries? It's been so amazing. Um, you know, we this is me and Robin's pandemic baby. You know, we created it during the pandemic. It was really difficult. Um, and starting to get the reviews, um, especially from a lot of women who've never read comics before and how they were like, oh my gosh, like, I don't know, this is what comics could be like and mm -hmm. how relatable it was and, and how they were laughing out loud or, you know, even crying because it really takes you through all these different emotions. Mm -hmm. um, it was very affirming, you know, it, it felt very affirming that I am on the right path. That even though, you know, me and Robin don't see a lot of the stories that we 
want to see in comics, um, you know, that, that they are just because they're not there doesn't mean people don't want them. And I think that that's the biggest thing that the reviews have told me is that people are thirsty for this kind, these kinds of stories. And if not an animation, I could, and I know we've had this storyline before in terms of television, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, which has inspired a lot of, you know, yes. girlfriends, insecure, absolutely living single, know, all of that. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> What's next for you? Oh, I um well I have my publishing company, Black Chelsea Press, and so um we publish comics that are focused on um black and brown creators, um women and non-binary folks. So I'm working on editing some comics that are coming out in a magazine. Um and I do have some comics that will be in that magazine. Um, I do, me and Robin have worked on a couple of projects together, and so there is another one we hope to work on in the future. Um so we we're we're a duo that you'll definitely see again. <laughs> what are some tips you want to give to someone who says, you know what, maybe now that I've been listening to Rose talk to Jamila, maybe I'll take a stab at writing. Because, you know, writing oh, for comics yeah. and, and, you know, other types of genre within literary, they're all different. What oh, want, yes. What's that? What's that? A couple of golden nuggets you want folks to know. I've always yeah, been that's... told just write, you know. <laughs> well, you know, with comics, it's it's very different. Um, and so I was self-taught as far as comics writing. Like I used to write and blog a lot before, but um, for writing for comics, um, you're writing for the artist. And so it is very different and a specific skill. And there are tons of great resources on how to write comic scripts um, there. So I would definitely, you know, go to your library or go to the bookstore and check out books about writing comic scripts so you can see, you know, the kind of information that needs to be in the different panels um, because it is definitely not the same as writing a novel. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> definitely not the same. And so, and I would also suggest starting small, you know, Wash Day, the first um, story in Wash Day Diaries is 27 pages. Mm-hmm. And of course, I had all these ideas of making it bigger, or doing more stories, but I'm like, chill, let's start small. <laughs> it's, it's you know, a lot easier to do and um, it can show that you can get something done. So I would definitely say, look up resources about writing comic scripts. You can see free examples of them online as well. Um, and um, if possible, see if you can hire an editor. Um, gotcha. And that can also help. Yeah. All right. It's a graphic novel titled Wash Day Diaries by Jamelia Rosser and Robin Smith. I've been in conversation with Jamila. Best of luck and continued success. I love this copy. It's all mine. Usually I give them away. I'm not giving this one away. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Thank bro. you for taking the time. I appreciate it. Bye-bye. And again, congratulations. Wash Day Diaries, a graphic novel telling the lives of four black women living in the Bronx. It has already nabbed one pretty good award, an Alex Award, and it's a finalist in the L.A. Times Book Prize. So, folks, don't give up on your dreams. You never know. And it's okay to use a fun Kickstarter or whatever, GoFundMe, whatever, to get your project launched. That's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are LaShawn Hudson, Daniel Razel. Our supervising producer is Tiffany Griffith. Our engineer is Sawyer Vanderwerth. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. 
send me an email, rose at wabe.org, as you always love to do. And some of y'all, I guess you're up at 2 and 3 in the morning, but that's okay. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash closer look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Sounds Like ATL is a music documentary series that takes an in-depth look at the artists amplifying Atlanta's famed music community. Built around a desire to highlight Atlanta's diverse and world-renowned music scene, each episode features unforgettable, intimate musical performances by fresh new musical guests, each with exclusive interviews about the stories behind their music. Listen to Sounds Like ATL Saturday evenings at 7 on WABE and WABE.org. Hey, y'all. I'm Mark Kendall. And I'm David Perdue. And we're the hosts of What's Good Atlanta, the new weekly comedy podcast from WABE. On What's Good Atlanta, we run down uplifting and unusual headlines from the universe known as Atlanta. And while we may not be journalists, we are comedians, and we'll be breaking down news and breaking down the stories that make you smile. We're just trying to see what's good, Atlanta. Episodes drop Fridays at WABE.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I get mine from a guy named Craig. Shout out to Craig. Mm -hmm. (laughs) W-A-B-E.